because what it really means that if, if the fossil fuel corporations in particular, and they are not the only culprits, you have other emitters as well, like cement industries and plants and so on. So if they're really concerned about climate change, you would already be phasing out fossil fuels. Hi, I'm Darshna. And I'm Janna. We're part of the podcast team at Klima Action Malaysia. And you're listening to Alamak, a podcast dedicated to talking about the climate emergency in Malaysia. We're part of Kami's ongoing efforts to raise awareness and create conversations surrounding climate change. Klima Action Malaysia, better known as Kami, is a grassroots climate movement led by Malaysian youth based on the principles of climate justice. Kami facilitates diverse civil society groups in understanding climate impacts to mobilize the declaration of climate emergency in Malaysia. In today's episode, we're going to focus on net zero. Over the recent years, net zero has become a popular buzzword. From energy experts to oil and gas representatives, everyone seems to be talking about it. We've seen the word used in panels, seminars, news, and even company vision statements. So we're here to demystify what it means and why it's misleading to believe that a net zero target is a feasible solution for the future. We will also talk to Mina Rahman, a president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia and legal advisor to Consumers Association of Penang and a senior researcher at the World Network. So, what do net zero emissions mean? Net zero refers to a balance between the amount of greenhouse gases produced and removed from the atmosphere. Net zero is achieved when the amount of greenhouse gases that we add to the atmosphere equals the amount that is removed. People get confused because they think that net zero is equal to a real zero emission. Instead, as we mentioned earlier, we achieved net zero when all greenhouse gas emissions released are counterbalanced by removing said greenhouse gases. So what is the problem with net zero? At first glance, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere sounds like a good thing. We wish that was the case. Net zero emissions is not the same as real zero or gross zero emissions. Real zero refers to either zero or reduced emissions overall. What net zero means is that instead of actually reducing our greenhouse gases emissions, companies want to continue their business as usual. They want to continue activities that produce greenhouse gases and bring them profit. Then they want to capture these greenhouse gases and remove them from the atmosphere. Again, at first glance, this doesn't sound like, mu- like much of a problem. If we capture the greenhouse gases emissions, then it's like the greenhouse gases was never produced. Win-win. Unfortunately, no. The technology to capture these greenhouse gases still does not exist. According to a 2020 report by the International Energy Agency, 70% of technology needed to capture greenhouse gases is still not mature. So can we upscale the technology in time? Let's first understand the amount of time we are working with. In the 2015 Paris Agreement, 196 countries, including Malaysia, agreed to a common target. The world will work together to hold the rise in global average temperatures to below 2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, an IPCC report from 2018 highlights that global warming is expected to surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius unless we can achieve net zero emissions in less than 15 years. This means that we only have until 2035 to achieve net zero emissions. What kind of technology will be used to capture the greenhouse gases? We came across carbon capture, utilization and storage the most. This is also known as CCUS. 
This involves capturing the carbon when it's emitted and then storing it underground. The issue with this is that the technology is still in its infancy, requiring billions in investment and has never been tested on a large scale. Other technologies include bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, BECCS, or direct air capture, BAC, which also present the same problem. These technologies are just not at the right capacity currently. Other net zero solutions include natural methods like reforestation, but even that solution is problematic. There simply isn't enough land area to absorb the amount of carbon emitted. Even if we planted a trillion trees, it will not be enough. Simply planting trees to draw down carbon is not a feasible solution. We need to restore depleted ecosystems. Let's say we entertain the notion that there is enough land. We'll have to then ask whose lands, whose forests. All this will do is cause displacement of vulnerable societies and land grabs. In Malaysia, that looks like the orang asli losing their land or farmers losing agricultural space. So what do real zero solutions look like? The solution to achieving real zero is simple, but one that requires courage. We need to reduce our emissions. This looks like targeting the excessive and wasteful consumption of the rich and elite, transformation of the energy sector, radical movement away from fossil fuels, restoration of depleted ecosystems, and so much more. The solutions to real zero exist and are attainable, but require large political and social will. Malaysia needs to realize that if we don't act now, we will truly have lost the chance. Net zero target, this net zero targets decades into the future is not enough to cut it. We deserve better and we must demand as such. Let's get on to our interview with Mina Rahman. Mina Rahman is a, the president of Sahaba Alam Malaysia and legal advisor to the Consumers Association of Penang and Senior Researcher at the Third World Network. She's here to answer our questions on what net zero versus real zero looks like in Malaysia. Hi Mina, thank you for being here. How are you doing? We're so excited to have you here. Um, yeah, so how are you doing here in the pandemic? Well, okay. I mean, just like everybody else, I think... Um, uh, it feels a little, um, you know, overwhelming, and and it's you know you 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 hope that there is a it comes to an end, but it doesn't seem to be. So I think that we are all just uh, continue to be adjusting and adjusting, and this like this looks like the new normal. Yeah. We agree. It looks yeah. like a, a cycle. We just keep going on. All right. So we're so excited to have you here. So we're going to learn about the differences between net zero and real zero with you today and how it looks like uh, within our local context. So Darshan is going to start off with the first question. Yeah. Uh, so Ms. Mina, to kick us off, what are some examples of net zero schemes in Malaysia and how effective are they in cutting carbon emissions, keeping in mind the loopholes of net zero? Well, we actually don't really have any net zero schemes yet, except for a pledge by Petronas, yeah? where Petronas had said that by 2050, it is going to go net zero. Now, I think for, for the audience, we need to clarify what net zero is. Um, and I think that that is really the most important understanding we need to have. What it actually means is that um, it's actually an equation. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's not not as if it is uh, located in 
science or anything, but it's just an equation with a basic concept uh, me being that um, emissions, emissions from sources, that's what they say, eh? all the sources that emit like your power plants, your, um, uh, you know, um, agriculture, even deforestation, all that emissions uh, minus the removals. The removals means the sinks, that which those which absorb like your wetlands, your intact forests, the oceans, that they absorb the carbon. Um, and so what you emit, one ton of carbon emitted minus one ton of carbon removed equals net zero. So it's just a bookkeeping exercise. And actually the problem here is that it's, you tend to believe that actually it works. And so it's very worrying that people have bought into this idea. So what essentially Petronas is saying that is that whatever it emits, it will absorb by planting trees or having other mechanisms, carbon capture and storage, we don't know. Carbon capture means you actually have a technology which removes the carbon that Petronas pumps and put it back into the into um, the soil or whatever. So the impression given is that whatever you emit, you will be will be absorbed by some kind of method where you buy the either by nature because you plant trees or or whatever, or that you actually use carbon capture and storage and other kinds of geoengineering, which is absolutely frightening. So there is this thing called bio uh, BECS, uh, bioenergy carbon capture. That's your 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 nature nature based solutions, and then you have the carbon capture, which is which is a different kind of technology. And then there's geoengineering, which is a which is which is another kind of solution, which is really frightening because this is an experiment. Um, so this is what it's about. And so um, what we what we all say from from looking at all this is that this is an illusion. Yeah, so it's actually um, something that is uh, evading the responsibility of having to do the real emission cuts now, to do the rapid reductions now, and to transition. For developing countries, for instance, we do need to transition. Like for instance, Petronas, 20% of the Petronas revenue actually goes to the government of Malaysia. So we are not saying that Petronas should close overnight, but we're definitely saying that there has to be a transition and a phase out. You can't continue to emit and pretend that you're going to be absorbing. So, so I'm sure you'll ask me more questions. So I'll stop here for the moment, just to explain that, that concept and how it's actually a fallacy for inaction today. Yeah, so I think leading on from what you said, how you said net zero is an illusion. So I think it's quite hard to differentiate between corporations that truly have like a genuine interest to change towards more ESG initiatives and ones that are doing it purely for publicity and a term that is often coined is greenwashing. So could you please explain what greenwashing means and what are some obvious indicators of greenwashing that would be noticeable to the public? I think what's, um, this is the danger that we need to watch out for. I mean, now everybody is talking about climate change, including the fossil fuel producers. And these were the corporations. In fact, um, uh, just a few corporations of the world are the ones that are most responsible for much of the emissions. 
um, and we need to look at it in terms of the, the from industrial, pre-industrial periods as well. So it's not like today, but it's also over the years of the massive pumping of emissions, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So they, these big corporations, including Shell, including Exxon, including um, Total, and a, whole, and a whole number of them um, in the North, especially, and they are transnational, right? So they are now saying, look, hey guys, we are very conscious about climate change, and now we are going to be um, going net zero, and we are going to be um, you know, planting more trees and so on and so forth. Now, and, and offsets, what they talk about is really offsetting. That's another concept. Offsetting means that um, you, while you are emitting, you are paying somebody else to plant trees and therefore your one ton of carbon is offset by somebody else planting of trees. So you continue emitting while somebody else is absorbing. And so what you do is you buy the credits, you buy the carbon credits of the country um, that is uh, planting the tree or is doing that is, is implementing the technology which is absorbing the carbon. So, and this is also linked to carbon markets. I mean, when they talk about markets, I mean, you and I know that you go to a market, you buy and sell products and services. Now here you're trading in carbon in the atmosphere. You can't see it, it's intangible. What are you trading in? When you say a carbon credit of so many tons, what does it mean? Somebody gives you a piece of paper which says that this is the amount of carbon that you have in your credit that you have, and this is what I'm going to sell. So this is what they are selling us. And for us, this is really greenwash. Um, because what it really means that if, if the fossil fuel corporations in particular, and they are not the only culprits, you have other emitters as well, like cement industries and plants and so on. So if they're really concerned about climate change, you would already be phasing out fossil fuels. In fact, the northern government, and we, 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 uh, we, we criticize them quite a bit. For instance, um, the, just to give you another example, President Biden, seen by you know everyone, oh you know he's not Trump, he doesn't deny climate science, and he's you know he is going to help in the United States uh, taking on more responsibility. But unfortunately, uh, a few weeks ago, he actually asked OPEC to pump more oil so that the energy prices will remain low because it will impact the economy. So this is greenwashing. So you really look at, are they genuine? So on the one hand, you say you are going to be reducing emissions. If you're really about reducing emissions, it's about facing it out and actually um, you know, no, not producing the, gener the, the, the greenhouse gases by your activities. But here, what they do is they're not decarbonizing. That's the term that we all use. They're not decarbonizing. You're not taking. You're not. You're not doing activity in a way that that doesn't emit carbon. You're actually um, doing activity that emits carbon. So, so we have to watch out for these greenwashing. And so the the the, the um, people, the and the, the governments and the corporations, which are actually the drivers of climate change because of their emissions, when they say that they are committed to climate change and they're going to change, you actually got to see what how they are doing it. Is it really real? Is there another agenda? Is it a false solution? Are they cheating us? Is it a fraud? Is it an illusion? So I think that's the way we should we should ask a lot of questions.
while we were doing our reading and preparation for this uh, episode, we came across uh, an article called Not Zero, written by Tewin Network and other climate justice groups as well. So there's a, definitely a lot of solutions outlined uh, to go to real zero, for example, especially renewable energy. How feasible are these steps actually? Well, I do think that we have to take it very seriously. I mean, just the most recent IPCC report, right? The uh, part of the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, everybody read it. I mean, many of us read it, those who were in the climate world. And, uh, you know, as the, what they call the code red for humanity. Yeah. And they basically, the startling uh, revelation is that because if you want to limit temperature rise, say 1.5, I mean, the, the Paris Agreement talks about limiting temperature rise between 1.5 degrees centigrade and 2 degrees centigrade based on pre-industrial levels. Um, but what we have to realize is that much of the warming that we are seeing today is through past emissions. So that's what the IPCC says, I mean, all that emission. So whatever we emit today will be future emissions because the CO2 is going to remain very long in the atmosphere. So the carbon budget, then that means that remaining atmospheric space to limit temperature rise to 1.5 is about 480 gigatons. That was under the 1.5 degree centigrade report of the IPCC, but the latest talks about a 500 um, gigaton budget. Now we are, the world is emitting about 42 gigatons of carbon uh, dioxide um, every year. So you, this budget will be exhausted. You just divide 500 by 42. It will give you roughly about 13 to 14 years before you bust the remaining space. So it's pretty scary, meaning that the 1.5 threshold degree is going to be reached very fast. The temperature limit, no? um, which we try to limit, is going to be breached. And some people talk about two degrees and that one that that 500 gigaton budget we talk about it gives you a 50 percent probability or so which means 50 percent probability versus 50 percent probability of not um of being a problem right so somebody always used to say this before if you know that the plane is going to crash um, um there's 50 percent chance it's going to crash will you board the plane, right? So the point I'm raising here is that we are really in a very serious situation. So the question really is, how do you get to real zero? First, we talk about what's called fair shares. In the climate justice movement, we talk about what is the fair shares for all countries to do. So we all agree, we, we have come to the conclusion that you must take into account historical emissions, you have to look at the current emissions, you have to look at the cumulative emissions, and you've got to see who is more responsible than, than, than others. And we have come to the conclusion quite clearly and obviously that the developed world, which was pumping so much into the atmosphere without any carbon constraint, they became rich. They became rich not because they're smarter than you and me. They became rich because they colonized us, and today is Merdeka Day. Huh? Um, we we uh, were a British colony for all these years, for 64 years. And, and after all that, um, you know, they continued to pump and so on. And so now when the climate crisis is being realized, developing countries are told that you cannot continue in the same way. We agree, developing countries like Malaysia and others cannot continue in the same way. But how do you get to real solutions? So for us, 
The first thing is that for developed countries and their corporations, particularly to do the rapid decline. Now they can do it. It's not that they cannot do it, but you know, a few years before you, before you all were born, I mean, I got into this because of the Rio summit, 1992. Already in 1992, the, when, the, when the world came together and they already talked about the greenhouse gases, global warming and so on. And the most important thing that they said is that we have to change our production systems, not only for the sake of the climate, but also for the sake of resources because we're depleting resources so much. You know, like there were numbers like the 20% of the world consuming 80% of the resources, while the 80% of the world consuming only 20% of the resources. A massive inequity, whether it's carbon consumption, whether it's your um, other natural resources, it's really inequity of the highest order. So what do you need to do? You need to save the world so that the poor will, who don't have energy today need to consume more energy. So if in poor countries where you don't have the option of going to renewable, either because you don't have the finance or because you don't have the renewable energy technology, then the world has to actually, the developed world is obligated to provide the finance and the technology so that they don't have to go and dig for more oil, but you cannot say that they cannot consume um, non-renewable energy because they you, there is energy poverty. You're talking about a lot of people with no energy poverty. So if we want renewable energy to go to the poor, we have to do that on a massive scale, very fast, with finance, with technology transfer, and with the large amount of money we need. And the issue of not enough money is also uh, nonsense, because the developed world we know can raise the money within a short period of time if they want to, like they did in the financial crisis of the of the. Uh, mid 80s and 90s they did that also for the most recent covid pandemic response a mckinsey report actually showed that they mobilized in two months 10 trillion dollars so they can do it so as um, somebody you know president i mean the former president of venezuela hugo chavez said if the world was a bank it would have been bailed out by now you know i mean i mean that is that is what it's about if you are really concerned, you can do it. So my point, the long and short answer that I'm coming to is really is that we have no options. You have to, first of all, fossil fuel production has to be phased out. And for developing countries, it has to be a just transition. What we mean is that, you know, even in, in, in you know, those, um, you know, all these uh, Petronas and its small, Petronas is, is big in pumping and so on. There are workers who depend on Petronas as well. There's government revenue that is dependent on Petronas. You have all these stations, the mom and pop stations also, which depend on Petronas. Tomorrow, if we face out, they will all be in trouble. So just transition, meaning we have to enable them, find them alternatives. We have to diversify. We cannot keep going on as business as usual. So for the developed world, they don't have the excuse at all. They have to phase out today and they can do it. They are already very rich. And so this issue of production systems back to the Rio days and lifestyle. The, the, the um, George Bush senior in 1992 in Rio said, nobody can negotiate the lifestyle of the Americans. That's what they said. So the Americans were over-consuming and much of the developed world over-consumes. If their emissions are going down, it's also because 
We are sending their factories to our parts of the world and the consumption emissions. So, so we are producing the, the emissions, but they are consuming what we are producing. So if you take into account consumption emissions, that will actually really, really give you the true picture of how much the Western world is actually consuming in terms of emissions and they are really responsible as well. So I don't want to say that developing countries are not responsible. I want to say that we have to do our fair share. That's why we have to do our to, to do um, also our fair share of the bargain, but it will not happen if we do not have much more financial resources internationally or much more of the technology transfer that we really need to, to do. But some of these solutions are also realizable today. For instance, many of us have been working with indigenous peoples protecting the forest. This was long before climate change became the buzzword. So, you know, Kami and Sabat Alam and all of us, we already know that they are the custodians of the forest, so protect the forest. They are the custodians, protect the rights of indigenous peoples, protect the remaining forests. You actually do need to um, find resources for the states not to convert their forests. And, uh, you know, so we shouldn't be de-gazetting forests as the Slangon government is doing. I mean, peatland forest in the Ululangan, yeah? It's ridiculous. So you can't be doing that. They should be protecting these kinds of forests. So they need resources to do that. And then also agriculture, many, many um, peasant communities around the world and also in Malaysia doing organic farming, fossil free, fossil free agriculture, which is there. It's called sustainable agriculture in the hands of, it's called agroecology. It can be done, but because you have big uh, corporations again that do not allow um, and governments working with them that bring their um, you know, fossil fuel technology of seeds and pesticides and chemicals, you never find the, the upscaling of these kinds of community-based agroecology and which can actually feed people and also provide jobs. Then, of course, you have the fishermen and the mangroves. Many, many, I mean, these are just examples I'm giving. You know, you see more mangrove cutting happening rather than mangrove regeneration. Many of us know that most one of the most important adaptation responses so we have been talking about emissions adaptation. I mean, you because of the emissions and that will continue to, to feel the impacts, you find that uh, coastal communities are going to be underwater. Sea level rise, storm surges, you know, so on and so forth. Adaptation is key. Mangrove forests are very key, um, natural barriers to, to um, you know, for, to, to, to counter the impact or to mitigate that. Um, you know, the sea level rise and so on. So why don't we really upscale this with our fish, fishing communities who will also then get, um, you know, their, their fish resources and will also be feeding, the, feeding all of us instead of doing reclamation projects, fighting, you know, we are fighting 4,500 acres of reclamation. Crazy. So, so instead of doing the right thing, our governments are doing the wrong thing. And so I can go on and on, but I'm, I'm saying you're asking me whether it's realistic. I think we have no choice. So if we continue with business as usual, we are going to see a lot more disaster than we are seeing right now. Already we are seeing it. It's not just the IPCC saying it, the wildfires and so on. Now, even here in Malaysia, Gunung Jirai, just recently, yeah, for those of you in Kadar, in the Yan and in the um, uh, Murbok area, Yes, partly it was because of large amounts of rain falling on Gunung Jurai in a short period of time. Never seen in a long time in 
history. You're going to be seeing this lots, lots more. And our ecosystem is not able to cope with it. And then when you have so much of disturbance, the, the natural disaster, which we say natural disaster, it will get even more exacerbated. So this is why I think we, you know, we have no choice and we have to move to the real solutions that actually work and not the false solutions. There's a lot of dependency on net zero technologies that include large investments in things like super batteries and hydrogen-based fuel. Do you think we can continue investing in this while investing in real zero or are they mutually exclusive concepts? Um, I think we have to do everything possible. Yeah. But I think what the problem here is that, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I am not an expert on hydrogen technology or, or all these other alternatives. I think one thing we need to get over with is that everything we'd find a technological fix. Yeah. The technology alone will solve the problem. It won't. So, because it's also not just a climate crisis. So like, for instance, the huge dependence on solar and uh, you know renewable technologies itself is also a problem. I mean, the solar farms require large amounts of land. So the solutions to the climate crisis also are not entirely environmentally friendly. They are also other effects, and you can't um, you know uh, continue to uh, use more and more resources of the world. So first, we have to find technological solutions that are appropriate to our local solutions. So this is about, okay, then also lifestyle changes. I think we have to start with that. People say that, you know, surely you can't just ask everybody to turn off the light bulb. We are not saying everybody turn off the light bulb and we're going to solve the problem. We're saying, but you also have to turn off the light bulb. You also have to have your climate policy. You have to have your climate change law. You have to face out fossil fuels. You need to find out where you don't have alternatives for certain things. For instance, why are we, why is Tesla producing cars, electric cars? And then you have all these uh, you know, Westerners and even some parts of our elite in this part of the world clapping and saying, wow, we have electric cars. But shouldn't we to be talking about electric tra public transport? Shouldn't we be saying, how do we reduce vehicles on the road? Should So, so instead, of, instead of doing the same thing with a different technology, we should be doing things differently in terms of consumption patterns and at the same time producing the kind of products that we need, which actually, um, you know, are essential. So to answer the question again, I think that we need to actually look at it very deeply. This, you know, development is for whom? It's who is doing this development? Um, it's development of what? Are we producing electric cars? Or are we producing public transport and renewable energy? Um, and, uh, you know, are we producing uh, massive amounts of cosmetics that we don't need and uh, Birkin bags that we don't need, massive big houses that we don't need, huge amounts of jewelry that, we, that, that, that people deck on themselves? We don't need any of that. We can't afford that. We don't need blood diamonds. Yeah. What we really need is the real kind of solution. So both from the sake of the environment and ecology and also from the sake of equity, the poor having to meet their basic needs. We have don't have enough resources to feed everyone. We, I mean, as, as Gandhi is often quoted as saying, there's enough resources to feed the world, but not enough resources for the greed of the world. 
And so we have to stop this 1% destroying the 99%. I think it's really interesting to hear you say that. Um, I guess circling back to net zero and our perception of it, I think that net zero is not only backed by many corporations, as you mentioned earlier, but also leading figures in the climate change community. For example, recently, the president of the incoming COP26 International Summit said that we, the world should call for more net zero targets. So how difficult do you think it will be to denormalize the net zero mindset, given that we're also accustomed to it by this point? Yeah, I think the problem is that the that's again about communications and who controls communications and who's putting the, the messages out there. I think that what we do need to do is like what you're doing, we do need to um, raise this awareness. We need to continue to fight it. And I think it's not only us, but I think there have also been quite a number of academics also in the Western world who have come out and hit out at net zero and the myths about net zero. So we do know why they are doing it, right? Because they want to postpone. Um, they want to postpone immediate action now. They want to give the illusion that because his adjustment is very difficult. It, the transformation is very difficult. Politicians keep postponing things. You know, like for instance, if you want to introduce a carbon tax, which I think you should in the EU as well, they should introduce carbon taxes across the EU. Um, I don't know whether the UK has a carbon tax, but the point is that politicians don't want to introduce taxes because when you do the taxes, because you actually, um, you know, progressive taxes in the sense that those who are emitting more emissions should be taxed high, those who are not emitting should not be, and the poor should be subsidized uh, somehow, because you don't want what happened in the Yellow West, you know, when Macron introduced this in France, you remember when he introduced this, um, some removal of some subsidy on fossil fuels, and and um, and there was a huge outcry uh, from the, 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 particularly the workers, because the prices of energy went up. So we do need to look at who will suffer for some of these um, responses, but the rich definitely will have to pay. The higher end will have to pay, the elite will have to pay. So coming back to net zero, we do need to show, and we have to keep saying it over and over again. That's why even in COP26, they can, they can all stand, the leaders can all stand and, and say, oh, the COP26 has been a success. We've got so many groups um, and countries will come together and they have um, all announced net zero. We need to continue to say the emperor has got no clothes. And, uh, and we have need to continue and say, we are not applauding. Like Greta Thunberg, uh, the young activist who has who inspired a whole generation of young people and also even the adults. Um, she's moved so many of them. And why? Why is she so concerned? And I think you all are young people in Kami as well. Why are you all concerned? Because it's your generation. And your generation has a tremendous responsibility. So you should tell your mothers, your fathers, your grandfathers, your great-grandfathers, your uncles and aunties and everybody that they have all have to pay attention to this. And that whatever that comes out of net zero and this kind of nonsense that, that is being um, you know, trumpeted around, that we really need to talk about rapid decarbonization. And we also talk, for some sectors, you cannot decarbonize. Um, for instance, if you, if you, some aspects of agriculture, you need food. They will definitely, although as much as you can do without fossil fuel agriculture, some aspects will require sequestration. But that's why you need to protect forests as well, protect the oceans as well, protect the wetlands as well. So you need to do both. 
So, and we need to really reevaluate um, everything that we have done in life together. I mean, um, in terms of how we live and it's not enough just to say, I refuse a plastic bag and I will carry it. Important as you do that, but not enough. So this is really a huge movement. So let's not worry about, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative out there is being controlled by um, some, you know, of the big powers and, and, uh, and people, but we have to expose what that agenda is. And we need to really speak truth to power. I think that's our responsibility. They don't like to listen to it, but we have no alternative. So we have to keep saying what we have to say, that net zero is a false solution. Now, if you say net zero by 2020 or net zero by 2025 or net zero by 2035 without relying on carbon offsets, without relying on carbon markets, that's a good idea. We can look at it. So net zero, net zero per se um, actually needs to be looked at closer. For instance, when we do, Malaysia does its carbon accounting, right? Usually when we report to the UNFCCC, we take into account the emissions and we also take into account how much is sequestered by the forest and then we give a net. Now, so in order for you to really go zero, that way you have to do these both, but at the domestic level, not by offsetting this, not by saying I will continue to pump like fly KLM, you know, to get to some part of the world and then plant a tree in Kenya. Now that's not going to help at all. So the rapid decarbonization has to happen, but net zero, we need to, it's not enough. We need to do much more than get to real zero. Lastly, zooming out to a more general question, with Malaysia battling the severe COVID-19 pandemic and political turmoil, climate change concerns have been pushed aside and taken a backseat. Do you think we will be able to make up for lost time? Well, it all depends on how much of organizing we do. Um, the politicians are going to, the politicians have not heard anything that we have said. Continue to degazette, continue to reclamation. I've been saying it, you've been saying it, we all have been saying it. Even the Slango State Assembly said that you shouldn't be, be degazetting the peatland uh, forest in Pululangat. Um, yeah, but they do it. So they're not listening. And why aren't they listening? And this is where I think we need to look at the nexus between politics and natural resources and the corporations. A lot of the time, we know that politicians stay in power and they want to do, and, and they're all interested in, you know, I mean, they want to remain in power. Sometimes I ask, there are some genuine politicians who really are interested. I cannot say that all are not, yeah? There are many MPs who are very concerned and they are on our side. But there are, large, there are a number of them who do this because they want to stay in power and want to continue to remain rich. And so they depend on corporations. And what do the corporations do? Where do they get the money? From the forests, from the mining, from the destruction of the environment, from converting this and this and that and the other. So what do we need to do? It's really an anti antithetical. So this link between money politics and also corruption and the environment, we have to change that culture. We have to really dramatically uh, oppose that. And more than opposing, the climate justice movement in this country needs to be much bigger. I think the number of us who are talking about this is not enough. We really need to go to our politicians and say, you know, if you want us to vote for you, will you stop this? Will you stop that? Will you do this? Will you do that? We have to make the demands. We have to make climate change and the environment our, our demands. 
and make it real in terms of the of of the um, discussions. Now you look at the parliamentary debates, shouting at each other, and even if there are MPs raising the right issues, not being listened to, and so the slangord. Um, state assembly before on the Ululanga issue, they were very good. They actually discussed it. Um, this setting, and they said, no, we can't agree with this. Now, that's the kind of polit political process we need. So we do need to do a lot. And I think that uh, my generation for the last, uh, I'm 63 years old, one year, um, you know, uh, younger than our, our, the in, our independent country. Um, fight, I, I also was very excited as a young person, really conscious of what was going on, seeing the kind of destruction that was going on. So your generation will have to do a lot, lot more. So what we need to do is, it's a pity that one of the problems of the pandemic is that we can't gather. Now, have, is it if it's possible to gather, we would have all been demonstrating on the streets, you know, when the one, when the IPCC released its report, we should have all been in all the um, you know, in front of our um, palaces, in front of our state governments, we should be making that, we would have been making that noise. So I think the pandemic has limited our ability somewhat because of that, but I think we do need to mobilize and bring a lot more action. So the, the, the climate change um, ministry, the Ministry of uh, Environment and uh, Water, they're doing what they can, but I don't think they're doing enough. We need to keep them on their feet and we need to make them do much more than what they're doing. You know, so so we, need to, we need to up our action as well, as much as we can. So um, I don't know whether I've answered your question, but I'm saying that uh, definitely you need a powerful and a strong climate justice movement, which is able to uh, shake the politicians and make them accountable. We hope you enjoyed listening to our episode on net zero and why it is misleading to believe that a net zero target is a feasible solution for the future. Instead, as Mina said, we should be looking towards a real zero emissions target as it will be more efficient in tackling our climate crisis. Thank you for listening.